if you have an infection and you get some antibiotics from the doctor, how effective do you want them to be? My guess is that uh, you want the antibiotics to work everywhere that they need to work, all the way through your body. Uh, You're not going to rely upon where you may think the infection is. You're going to ask for some doctor who knows what they're doing, who knows the way about your body. And you want the antibiotics to eradicate the infection from every part of your body. The Gospels are the most effective treatment there is for our sick hearts. No, the the Gospels are uh, not an alternative to medical science. If you have health problems, see the appropriate health professionals. But if your problem is with what God and the Bible call sin, the very best treatment is the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. For they will explore every part of your hearts and minds and every part of your being, even if there are parts that we want to hide. And when we let the Gospels do that, we will be healed and feel cleansed like we've never felt before. The Anglican Book of Common Prayer draws heavily on the Gospels. I remember the first time I participated in the full service of Holy Communion from the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. And I felt that God had physically got inside me and was sort of punching me in different parts of my heart. It explored every part of me. Uh, There was nowhere for me to hide. And I felt exhausted and exhilarated. Unfortunately, that service is long and the language is inaccessible for some, so we don't use it here today. But the Gospels will do the same job. Uh, I'm not diminishing the rest of the Bible or discounting prayer. I'm saying... If you let the Jesus we meet in these Gospels interrogate you and the way that you think and behave in every possible situation, you may feel exhausted, but you will feel whole and refreshed and positive about facing whatever challenges that lie ahead. And if it wears off, go back to the Gospels. They'll keep working. They have no use-by date. So far in Mark's Gospel, I've been emphasising the need to consider how Mark is building our understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. Uh, And that will continue through the rest of this uh, book until we reach the final chapter. We've already had a couple of opportunities to think about how we may respond to what we see in the Jesus that we meet in the early stages of his ministry. Uh, we've been asked, what would we have done if we were called to follow Jesus, like the four fishermen? Would we have left our families and livelihoods to follow Jesus? And do we have the faith, like the paralysed man and his friends who we met last week? But today the examination is going to be more thorough. Are we prepared to let Jesus and his gospel every aspect of our being, to let every lurking sin be exposed to his cleansing light and be made clean. It is for this reason that I've delayed our confession 
until after this sermon. I want you to have time to think about how much you need the healing, saving work of Jesus. Uh, And then to confess, to repent, if you know that not all is right with your life, but you want it to be. And in that, we may then draw upon the forgiveness won for Jesus on the cross when he died for our sins. I'm not going to pick on any one sin or even a few. Most preachers have their go-to sins. Some emphasise the the various uh, forms of idolatry. For others, sexual immorality seems to be an obsession, as if there is no other sin. Uh, I tend to go most often to the sins of selfishness, hypocrisy, and thinking less of people than God does, because they are my particular sins. But I do not want to limit your openness to the forensic force of Jesus in his gospel. If you have an itch, let Jesus scratch it and confess and repent and draw on the power of Jesus to be healed of that sin. It's a simple story. Jesus is still in Galilee, the northern part of Israel. Even though it is early in his public ministry, he's drawing big crowds. Many were seeking his amazing works of healing, but at least some were interested in his teaching about the kingdom of God. And he was walking, as he was walking along, he met a, a tax collector sitting in a tax collector's booth. We're told he is Levi, a son of Alphaeus. Uh, we know nothing of Alphaeus. And this Levi may well have also been known as Matthew the author of a gospel and one of the 12 apostles. In Matthew 9, verse 9, there is a reference to a tax collector called Matthew, and they're probably the same guy. The Romans liked exacting taxes. That was the main reason for an empire, to plunder foreign lands for whatever wealth they could get their hands on, to finance their buildings and lifestyles in Rome and the other cities that they built. There were many forms of taxation. There were land and poll taxes, which the Romans tended to collect themselves. And there were customs duties imposed on goods as they were moved about the empire. If you were taking your produce to market, you may have to pass by a tax collector's booth and pay this custom duty. The Romans often outsourced the collection of this tax to corruptible local people. These are people who wanted to make a buck from their own people. We're told as Jesus passed by, he said to Levi, follow me. And Levi got up and followed him. Again, like the calling of the fishermen, we don't know what background information Levi had about Jesus and whether he had heard him speak or seen him perform miracles. I tend to think Levi would know something about this Jesus, but probably not a lot, as Jesus is still early on in his ministry. Tax collectors were seen by the common people of Israel as traitors, collaborators with the uh, oppressive and pagan Romans. They were really the pits. A Jew who collected Roman taxes was disqualified from being a judge or a witness in court. They could not go to synagogue or temple. Jews were forbidden to receive money from tax collectors. 
I've often heard preachers emphasise the corruption and violence used by tax collectors, but the contempt ran much deeper than that. Tax collectors brought disgrace to their family. Jewish teachers permitted a Jew to lie to a tax collector. It would be like me standing up there and saying, fiddle your tax, you know. So despised were the tax collectors. They were detested as unclean and seen as committing treason to God. They were seen as worse than lepers, as a leper did not choose leprosy. It was bad enough that Jesus would ask the outcast to join his team, but then he went to Levi's house and shared a meal with Levi, tax collectors and sinners. Back then, table fellowship was far more important and controlled than it is in Western culture today. To eat with a tax collector or a sinner was a betrayal of Jesus' Jewish identity and his God. It would be like the bishops of the Anglican Diocese of Sydney marching in the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras and going to the sleaze ball afterwards. I assume that they don't. We're told that... We're told what sins the sinners had... Sorry, we're not told what sins the sinners committed. It is often assumed they were prostitutes, but it could well be Jews who no longer followed the laws of Moses. Either way, it was unthinkable for a good Jew to eat with these people. We see some people who were already plotting Jesus' death. Pharisees and teachers of the law were only in chapter 2, but they were already plotting his death. So these Pharisees and teachers of the law were watching Jesus closely, close enough to see the company was keeping and to ask why Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. Uh, And James picked it up well. You can just imagine their outrage and their condemnation. The tax collectors and sinners invited Jesus to dinner while the Pharisees and lawyers stood outside in judgment. The tax collectors and sinners were said to have followed Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law did not. The Pharisees were a religious sect who emphasised strict compliance with an expanded form of the laws. And you know the punchline to this story. One of the most famous statements of Jesus. Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, come to co- I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Later we will hear the Apostle Paul say that no one is righteous, not one. But that's not the point here. Jesus was choosing to associate people who knew they needed his help and welcomed him, rather than the Pharisees and the lawyers who wanted to kill him. The irony here is really heavy. It's as if the tax collectors and sinners knew they needed Jesus, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law, who needed him just as much, if not more, didn't. They thought they were righteous, even though they were plotting his murder. Last week we we heard Jesus pronounce forgiveness on sin. Now he reclines at table with sinners. It appears he is the real host of the party. And through sharing table with these sinners, Jesus offers forgiveness that only God could give. As Alex showed last week, 
Uh, in doing so, he anticipates the messianic banquet at the end of time. This is the banquet we read of in Revelation, where all followers of Jesus will join him at his table in heaven. All of us will sit down with Jesus. As I've said before, don't be distracted by logistics. Uh, if God can create the universe and sustain it from moment to moment, he can organise a rather big party. And it is a party of sinners who want to follow Jesus. They're the people who will be at that table. Sinners who want to follow Jesus and know that they need him rather than sinners who don't. The impression we are given is that the Pharisees and the lawyers had no sense they needed anything from Jesus. We might hope that our religious leaders would applaud someone who tried to reach out and to connect with sinners. But these Pharisees and lawyers would neither accept they needed Jesus, nor could they see any point in Jesus helping people who clearly needed God. They were like the stiff-necked people we met in our first Bible reading who rejected the ways of God presented through Moses. They'd just been led through the wilderness out of slavery in Egypt, but they wanted to do their own thing. They wanted to make up their own rules, to do their own ways. And have you noticed the real scandal in this story? For there is a scandal in this story. Jesus sits with tax collectors and sinners without calling upon them to give up their evil ways. Here it appears that repentance is not a precondition to the love and acceptance of Jesus. You may be really familiar with this story, but I think this really, really stands out. He doesn't say, you're terrible, terrible people, you've got to change all of this, you've got to do that, you've got to go, and then you might just about be okay. He says, let's sit down, let's have a meal, let's talk. He, he just shares his love. Jesus initiated this meal. He probably knew he was being watched by his enemies. And as the theologian James Edwards says, Jesus sowed love as profligately and uncalculatedly as the sower who sowed the seeds on unpromising places in the parable of the four soils that we'll come to in a few weeks. Jesus scatters his love everywhere. And all you have to do is let it take root. That is what scandalised the religious authorities of the time, as it scandalises many people today who defend the gospel in terms of moral reformation and character formation, you know, be a good citizen, be a Christian. It scandalises people who say, try harder rather than accept God loves us all, whoever we are, wherever we are. We don't have to try harder. We just have to let Jesus' love heal us and change us. And when Jesus' love takes hold of us, then other changes will follow. Jesus shows that following him is more important than following the laws of Moses or, or social customs. Jesus asserts his authority over the authority of the law 
and his generous love over merit. This is the scandal of God's grace. Whenever you hear the word grace, think of scandal. Because no one thinks this is the way the world should work. With a benevolent God sharing his love with everyone. Where is the grace scratching you today? I can imagine a number of different responses to this story. I imagine that there are some, not necessarily here, who know there is somewhere inside them that says, why bother with people who will not help themselves? Or, or why bother with people who haven't worked as hard as me? We've had people question the amount of time and effort we put into our emergency relief program, GAP. Couldn't the money be better spent on evangelising Glebe? But here Jesus was sharing a meal with people who needed him, not letterboxing or door-knocking every town in Israel. Yes, he did go about, and yes, he did talk about the kingdom of God, but what's he doing here? He's sitting down with people who needed him, who needed his fellowship, and in that context were able and open to, to, to get to know him and his message. Each Monday and Wednesday and monthly at the real meal, we share food with people who need fellowship and need Jesus. We offer them the love of Jesus, not our judgment. In my final year at Moore College, I wrote my honours thesis on coming to Christ in dementia. Uh, I looked at how people can share the good news of Jesus with people whose cognitive ability appeared to be seriously impaired by dementia. I had a couple of colleagues, more than a couple, say, why bother? Why not put your effort into people who will understand and remember? And my answer was always the same, that there is no one who is beyond the healing, saving love of Jesus. No one. But it is challenging to live this consistently every day. Sometimes at Gap I find myself sweeping up leaves or clearing mud off the steps and our Gap clients just look on. Or I'm carrying tables out with an orthotic boot on or something like that. And I can find myself thinking, it would do you good to lend a hand. And thank God... I see the Pharisee in me, sitting in judgment on people whose lives are so much harder than my own. How could I do that? Because I'm a sinner and I need Jesus as much as anyone else. I hope there is something in this story today that makes each one of you go, ouch. I hope you're able to say, I need Jesus' forgiveness as much as the tax collector or sinner and as much as the Pharisee and the lawyer. I hope you let Jesus and his gospel do their work. And please don't get bogged down in guilt. There's nothing in this story that I can see that suggests Jesus set out to make the tax collectors and sinners feel guilty. He seems to want to share his hospitality and his offer of healing. So our response should not be guilt 
or thinking about what other people need to do. It should be simply to say, thank you, Jesus, for all you offer. You are the healer of my heart, and I need that. I will let you into me, to to explore every part of me. I, I, I will let you love me as you want to love me. And then simply try and follow Jesus with the help that he gives us. Draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to to put sin behind us. We do this not to earn our forgiveness or to pat ourselves on the back, but to follow Jesus because Jesus can do things we can never do for ourselves. I can't clean my inside. Jesus can. I can't fight my selfishness. Jesus can. I'm a sinner. Jesus can heal me. And when I see myself doing things and thinking things that, don't, that I don't usually do, but now seem the right things to do, I feel better. I feel healed. Jesus succeeds in his, his, his mission. You know, he came to heal sinners and, yes, I feel healed. And, and we all can. So let's now stand and praise God for the love that we find in Jesus.